listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we clarify distinctions between Mormon and Credo Christian thought. I am Brendan, here with... Skylar. Skylar. Yes. We got we got a lot of stuff to cover today, oh, so as much. usual. So we, uh, we're going to be, just so you know, right up front, hitting some loose ends from last week. Yes. That Skylar wanted to make sure to hit, so... We'll get to do that, and then we'll get into this week's material a little bit. But, yeah. I almost just spilled my coffee everywhere. I feel like that music just cut off very suddenly it in did. comparison to normal. Yeah. Did you notice that? Mm-hmm. I didn't get the smooth fade out there. I have to look into that. Yeah. Wow. Is it going? I don't know. I don't even know. Yeah. What kind of coffee you got there? I don't even know. I forgot. Little Harmons. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> we need to we need to sanctify your coffee <laughs> habits. I've been missing the tea. Oh, yeah. we had it last time. Yeah, we did. We but last time. I need to start making coffee. That's just that's yeah. just what needs to happen. I need it at this time of day. So I've been working on a new coffee bar at my house, which is uh pretty exciting. We're uh I've always dreamt of having just an epic coffee bar in my house and over the last several years i have acquired all of the good equipment but it's just spread out all over the place because there's not enough room to put it all in one location so we ripped out this old entertainment center that was in my house it's like this old honey oak nasty looking thing i'm sorry if you like honey oak colored cabinets and stuff i still have a kitchen that has a bunch of honey oak colored cabinets in it but we ripped that entertainment center out put in some nice new white shaker style cabinets got the nice butcher block countertop putting some you know shiplap up behind it gonna put some shelves with some really nice fake plants on it it's just you know and then it's gonna have all my coffee stuff in one spot espresso machine a few grinders because if you know coffee, you know you can't just have one grinder. No. That doesn't that just doesn't exist. You gotta have multiple grinders. <laughs> one for your espresso, one for your drip. Yeah. One for when the kids are asleep, one for when they're awake. You know, <laughs> you know how it goes. Then uh yeah, all my all my pour over contraptions. Do I get an invitation? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, we're wait. we're having a coffee party as soon wait. as I'm done. I can't wait. Yeah, our interns here have already been, uh, you know, they're in too. We're going to do coffee cupping. Do you know what that is? No. I feel like I've I've talked about coffee so often that I've probably explained this on the podcast and I've just already forgotten. But yeah, coffee, coffee cupping is where you use a particular process to try the flavors of different coffees side by side. And what's fun about it is when you do a coffee cupping – and you start to actually pay attention to the flavors that are there, that's when you, I think many people come to realize that coffee actually tastes different based on what bean it is when you're doing the side-by-side comparison. Most people, they don't really get that when they're drinking just their regular cups or going to place to place. You just don't pay attention. But when you're trying different coffees from different places around the world side-by-side, the differences of flavor become really obvious. So it's a lot of fun. That's so cool. Yeah. I I can't wait. Yeah. To Let's uh, do it. Do a coffee cupping. That's right. With you. Yep. Um, yeah, because I, I think most people, 
would just be able to tell the difference more based on the sugar flavoring yeah or whatever yeah sugar content yep not the bean that's right yeah like if you go to a coffee shop and you get a mocha yeah it's going to taste like chocolate right anywhere but what people may not know is some beans in and of themselves have a chocolatey note and other beans in and of themselves have a strawberry blueberry note that's so cool and uh without any additives it's just it is what it is so anyway that's so cool so <clears throat> that's what I've been up to. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm trying to think, okay, what, what can I say? So here's one thing. I had a major vocal injury three years ago. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I had a major vocal injury and I could still, I could even, when we were first starting this, hear it at times yeah. in my voice. And I think it's shrunk, you know, huh. cause it's like a blister on the vocal cords. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know when it happened or whatever. My, That's wild. My sister, she, um, she's a vocal teacher, and she wants to get on the science side of the voice when it comes to therapy and all that. She helped me quite a bit. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so I actually spent a couple years never singing huh. to try to. Yeah. And you sung I, on the podcast a couple weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, I know. So that's a. I, I had to redeem. Can I redeem myself? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. This is, I'm sure, a great song for a Christian podcast, right? Yeah. People are strange when you're a stranger. Do you know this song? No. Yes. Faces look up. <laughs> Can you admit it? <laughs> when you're alone, women seem wicked. When you're unwanted, streets are uneven when you're down. So there you go. You got a good voice. I've been trying nice. to uh, yeah. sing a little more. Wow. And and Jim Morrison. What causes the blister? Was it like all your hardcore? Um, could have been your screen. Uh, could have been a sneeze. Oh wow! Actually, wow. Yeah. If you don't you tighten your stomach, violently. all the tension can. Yeah. Isn't that weird? Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. So you should tighten your stomach when you sneeze. Yeah. So that it, you know some of the pressure. It's not. It's probably a good thing to know as a cords. preacher. So, well, yeah, I mean, it could probably happen with preaching as well. Yeah, I I just, I don't want to sneeze and never have a word to say again. (laughs) All right. Well, should we hit it? Yeah, I think so. You got a new device over there. You going back, you smartphone in again? No. What's going on here? Okay, I'm I'm using it only for Uh audible podcasts. I thought you gave this up. I did. Are you relapsing? Is that? No, because I don't use this as a phone. Mm. So everything but the phone. Although you just, you I have carry it with you it. all the time, that way you can still yeah. use it. Audible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> is this is this wanting? So it doesn't count it as smartphone addiction if uh, you're not using it for texting and calling. I guess as long as <laughs> you you may have called me. As long as you're yeah. using it for everything else, that, you, you know can, what? Uh, <laughs> there might be some hypocrisy there. I admit it. I admit it. Uh, all right. How how about we start with? Uh, how about I give a nod to the Presbyterian brethren today, and we'll use the Westminster Confession of Faith. Let's but do it. Let's start with uh, chapter 13 of sanctification, and uh, then we'll jump into the Come Follow Me material. This is from the Westminster Confession. They who are once effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart, and a new spirit created in them, are further sanctified really and personally 
through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified. And they, more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces, to the practice of true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. This sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life, there abiding still some remnants of the corruption in every part. Whence ariseth in a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. In which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We're going to be talking about the topic of sanctification uh, in large part when we get into Romans 7 to 16, and are going to be discussing some of the distinctions between how we would interpret these passages according, of course, to a credo-Christian perspective versus the way that the LDS faith uses these passages. And uh, so the curriculum itself is going to be in Romans 7 to 16. Before I even start walking through that curriculum, though, I think we go ahead and tie up the loose ends before that. Um, yeah. Because we got stuff from the last lesson. So if I you haven't yeah, if you haven't listened to the last lesson, we covered Romans 1 to 6. It might be helpful to go back and listen to that uh, because you really need to see Romans as a whole, um, as we would say with any scripture, to follow Paul's train of thought throughout. But Romans 1 to 6 is uh, just a glorious, glorious uh, explanation of justification by faith yeah. alone. Yes, And so we got to talk in depth about what that means. And uh, of course, Paul doesn't believe that you're justified by faith alone, and that faith is uh, an excuse to be dead in sin. No, the whole point is you're justified, you're made alive together with Christ, and you begin to walk in a new life. And so your faith is uh, is evidenced by works that you do, by new life. And so we'll, we'll get into that. But, Skyler, why don't you go ahead and hit on uh, whatever those two or three just kind of loose ends that yes. we wanted to touch on were. I just think it would be irresponsible for me not to do this. So yep. uh, first, I never got to where I could lay out all the different LDS views um, of justification. And I figured it would be helpful <clears throat> to lay it out in one spot. Yeah. Um, so in the manual, um, even just the come follow, me manual, come follow me manual, it'll say justification, justified, justified. These terms refer to the remission or pardoning of sin. When we are justified, we are forgiven, declared guiltless, and freed from eternal punishment for our sins. Okay. But it, it, let, me, let me add just one sentence from the seminary manual that might help. Why was Abraham used as an example of being justified? Great question. Abraham continued to be faithful after covenanting with God and being circumcised. Thus, Paul was able to show that individuals were not justified through obedience to the law of Moses, but by faith and works through the grace of Jesus Christ. So that that's in the same manual. So yeah. that's the current thing. Now, interestingly enough, though, they cite a Christofferson talk called Justification and Sanctification 
in which justification is called the fruit of the atonement. Justification and sanctification, interestingly enough, are both the fruit of the atonement. Um, they're elements of a single divine process that qualify us. And of course, he's going to also do the you know, cause and effect story we covered last time. But once again, it's a process. So I'll, I'll link to that. But it's the idea is justification removes the punishment for past sin. Then sanctification removes the stain effects of sin. Um, the action of acceptance on our part opens the door for the process of justification, remission or pardoning of sins, and sanctification, cleansing from sin, to work in us. Um, so once again, that's even different from the very manual that cited it. Here's, here's David Ridges. David Ridges, he says, justified means being exalted in celestial glory. Being exalted in celestial glory. Uh, further, when we are justified, it means that we have been faithful, have followed the promptings of the Holy Ghost, when we are justified, it means we have been faithful, yeah. have followed the promptings of the Holy Ghost who leads us to live righteously and participate in the saving ordinances and covenants of the gospel. Thus, we become worthy to be cleansed by the atonement. I'm, that's not a misstatement. Mm -hmm. Thus, we become worthy to be cleansed by the atonement and therefore are lined up in harmony with God such that we are worthy to live with him forever in exaltation. Another line, the atonement made eternal life available to all upon condition that they live worthy of being justified, mm. meaning to be cleansed from sin and approved to dwell in the presence of God forever. Okay, so that's David Ridges. Once again, the Institute guy who wrote the, the kind of book being promoted, even at Deseret Book. You can even get it at Costco, going through this manual this year. Uh, sorry, going through the New Testament. Uh, even for this year. How about Bruce R. McConkie? How does he define it? We've read this on a past episode, so I won't read the whole thing, but this is his his entry. Uh, uh, calls it the law of justification. Uh, does say it's essential to salvation. And, uh, he says, indeed, one of the great religious contentions among the squabbling sects of an apostate Christendom. <laughs> Who's that? Is whether, yeah, I wonder who. Is whether men are justified by faith alone without works, as some erroneously suppose Paul taught or whether they are justified by works of righteousness, as James explained. So once again, does do the pitting thing. What then is the law of justification? It is simply thus. Uh, this. All covenants, contracts, bonds, obligations, oath, vows, performances, connections, associations, or expectations in which man must abide to be saved and exalted must be entered into and performed in righteousness so that the Holy Spirit can justify the candidate for salvation in what has been done. An act that is justified by the Spirit is one that is sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, or in other words, ratified or approved by the Holy Ghost. This law of justification is the provision the Lord has placed in the gospel to assure that no unrighteous performance will be binding on earth and in heaven, and that no person will add to his position or glory in the hereafter by stealing or gaining an unearned blessing. Yeah, that's a little different. <laughs> um. So that's another one. That's yeah. Bruce R. McConkie. Mm -hmm. Richard Lloyd Anderson. Uh, we covered him last time. His book, Understanding Paul. We're going to be dealing with quite a bit because he is on, you know, he has the credentials of a New Testament scholar. Yeah. He is their guy for Paul. Um, and still, if you read the, the classic books, 
in terms of uh, Mormonism, are they Christian, all that, they still cite Richard Lloyd Anderson. Mm-hmm. He defines it, we covered this last time, but just to, for completeness, I want to conclude it, that it's about, uh, it is forgiveness of sins through Christ. Yet, retaining this marvelous blessing was dependent on the actions of men and women. So, okay, you you gain it, you get forgiveness, but it's dependent on your works. Grace, once again, equals justification plus motivation. And remember, he talks about Paul's chain of progression or ladder of salvation, where justification is the first rung on the ladder. Um, in this line, he says, salvation by grace could more clearly be entitled called by grace, for the reward is dependent on a righteous life motivated by love for Christ. Blake Osler. I didn't. I mentioned him a couple times. I never got to his view, though. Those who are familiar with the new perspective on Paul will probably have understood a little bit of what I said. This is uh, from uh, his book. Once again, he's relying on E.P. Sanders, Jimmy Dunn, and N.T. Wright um, for some of the framing. Uh, justification is based on what one does and not solely on grace. Justification is ultimately covenant inclusion. But good deeds are required to maintain the covenant status. So it can be like, oh, it's by grace to be included in the covenant community. Mm-hmm. But good deeds are required to maintain that. Um, to other things. Paul is not addressing how a sinner stands before a holy God, but Gentile inclusion. That's the issue. Um, relying on E.P. Sanders here, obedience maintains one position in the covenant, but it does not earn God's grace as such. Righteousness in Judaism is a term which implies the maintenance of status among the elect, right? Yeah. All those places in Isaiah, that's what it means, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah, sarcasm. Yeah, can't yeah, tell. Yeah. Uh, the real debate <laughs> with the interlocutor for sorry, interlocutor for Paul is how one gets into the covenant. So, to finish off his point, salvation is a matter of entering into the new covenant through faith in Christ by grace, and thereafter remaining in the covenant by keeping that law that fulfills and sums up the law of Moses, the law of love, or the law of Christ. Those who do the law of love shall be justified. That's a quote from this book. One does not earn salvation by keeping the law of love. Rather, love remains in the new covenant relationship of the blood of Christ by keeping the law of love. Mm -hmm. Once again, so here's here's the irony, right? I just laid out how many different views, all from informed sources that speak to a very relevant issue, and they don't all agree. So, for example, if you if you didn't catch it already, David Ridges defines justification as the end point. Blake Osler and Richard Lloyd Anderson, the the you know lower rung on the ladder or covenant inclusion, the manual wants some sense of it, it being declarative, but then cites Christofferson talking about it as a process and it actually being the fruit. Yeah. Um. So. There you go. That is justification. Yeah. And that, that's not even, of course, uh, McConkie had a very, you know, old Mormon mm-hmm. kind of view that it's yeah. DNC 132, you obey, you get what you deserve. Yep. It's one of the, it's just, I, that's helpful because it shows why dealing with LDS perspectives is often so difficult because even on the doctrines that we would consider to be absolutely fundamental to get right, you can easily pull up six different perspectives where they're all saying different <laughs> things. It's like, how do you, yeah. how do you begin to nail down what there, there is no such thing as the LDS perspective on this, that, or the other. Um, it's, it's 
open to as much interpretation as there are LDS people to interpret it. Right. Um, yeah. I, th- I think the Osler one is inter- interesting because that's clearly the direction that a lot of scholarly people within the LDS faith are going right now is to mm-hmm. pick up on the new perspective on Paul. And we were talking about this a little bit off air. I just wonder how uh, they reconcile that new perspective, even with so many of the different doctrines that they uphold. So even even hearing Osler uh, there in his definition talking about the entrance into the covenant happens on the basis of grace. Well, that implies that there is a point in time in which you enter into the new covenant by grace. And I just wonder how that works with an LDS perspective. Mm-hmm. At what point is there grace where you enter in, where it's not a work you do, it's grace yeah. that gets you into the covenant community. Um, and then also that implies that there are people who are outside of the covenant and there are people who are in the covenant. And, uh, you know, even like, how do you nail that down within the LDS perspective? Because that implies if you're outside the covenant, you need to be brought into the covenant. And that happens apparently, according to Osler, by God's grace. In what sense? You know what I mean? I I just, I'd be curious to hear some of his reasoning on that. Because those are the questions that, of course, are coming through my mind. Right. Uh, Because I don't see any, at any point within an LDS perspective, where you enter into the covenant on the basis of God's grace. It, no. It's a work you do. It's your baptism, exactly. right? Or, or something that you do as an act that enters you into the covenant. Yeah. In fact, um, where is it? They have, um, let me just read this. Uh, this is from later more dealing with um, Romans 9 stuff, but this is a great place to put it where Richard Lloyd Anderson dealing with the, you know, Jacob I have loved, Esau I hated, right? Mm-hmm. Once again, they they will lean into the premortal existence to account for even that. So is it ultimately grace, Blake Osler? Right. If even your being born into an LDS family that's in the covenant was based on premortal worthiness, which... Um, uh, you know, this is to quote Richard Lloyd Anderson, they had not merited God's call from the point of view of earth life, but Latter-day Saints have the added perspective of the pre-mortal existence and understanding God's choices. Um, election is without earthly works because calls are by definition prior to the task for which the call is made. So yeah. that's how they try to get around God's choice is to say, well, ultimately even that they push it back to the premortal existence. In the seminary manual, they had this under the heading, the love of God and the blessings he offers us. Consider offering a small reward to everyone in the class who is willing to complete a simple task. If anyone decides not to complete the task, ask students if it is unfair or proves that the student is not loved equally if they do not receive the same reward as the students who completed the task. Yeah. Where's grace? Yeah. Right. Where is God forgiving you know, uh, those who don't deserve it, the thief on the cross. Where's the cross in any of these explanations? Yeah. Honestly, think of the thief on the cross and the cross, mm-hmm. and you'll see that none of them are centered on it. And yeah. that should show you're dealing with something different than Paul, who says he preaches nothing but Christ crucified. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it's it's a great great point. Yeah, because um, I, 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 guess, I guess that they would... Perhaps even I'm just trying to reason from sure. their perspective. Sure. Uh, you know, I guess that they would have to say, in some sense, every person 
on the planet is in this new covenant. And it's whether or not you're going to be obedient to it, um, you know, uh, along the path, right? Um, given given just their concept of universal atonement, yeah. that everybody, you know, gets the chance to progress, I guess. But I, I don't know. I just, I just see conflicts all yeah. over the place. And, right. Especially if the Bible is any sort of standard. Right. Right. In their system... No, there's not tons of conflict. The conflict comes when they try you try to pin them down on the definition of justification. Yeah. They all agree on the difference between salvation, exaltation, premortal existence, the gods, not creation, but um, you know, organization of mm-hmm. matter yeah. into worlds, right? And that's that's the irony too. Um it, the interpreter will do this all the time, right? Where they'll they'll point out you know, new perspective stuff. And they, they'll never point out the obvious point that I don't care if it's E.P. Sanders, Jimmy Dunn, or, or N.T. Wright, none of them are claiming that Second Temple Judaism is polytheistic. Yeah. Right? Yep. That the early Christians believed in multiple gods. Yeah. You know, or, yeah. <laughs> or that it, yeah. God was once a man. That became, I mean, all of them are assuming, right, the, mm-hmm. the Old Testament view of God. Yeah. Um, Which, if, right. if you're not familiar with what we're referencing there, the new perspective on Paul is a perspective that, that uh, arose really out of, uh, they would say, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in many ways, and just new like Jewish research and things of that. Yeah, closer nature study of that, rabbinics. Yeah, things that have have been discovered, I guess, in the mid 20th century. That uh, scholars say now that we could read this stuff, we can get more of an idea of what was happening in Judaism at the time of Jesus. And so, new perspective on Paul, people will claim that we have been reading Paul wrong this whole time, yeah. that we have yeah. been misinterpreting the uh, different things that we're seeing in the text because we don't we didn't have a proper understanding of uh, of the context within Second Temple. Judaism, and uh, of course, there have been a lot of you know great scholars that have written to show that that's just not the case, right. and that their arguments are are on very shaky ground. Right, Tom Schreiner, Michael Horton. There's that's a right. lot of great that's scholars right. that have reanalyzed all this stuff. Yep, yeah. and the the tricky thing is these authors who write, uh, you know, the, some of them are people that you just now mentioned, but um, N.T. Wright is the the big hammer right now, at least right? for believing Christians. That's right. And, yeah. uh, it's, it's the, the tricky thing is when you read these different authors, they have a lot of really good insights. Sure. Into the resurrection. They have great insights. Really yeah. Great yeah. insights into yeah. some of the Jewish contexts and things like that. But the conclusions that they draw on the basis of the data that they've discovered through their research is where we think they've gone faulty. Yeah. And, uh, we, we think that, they are ignoring different grammatical points um, in in making a claim that the historical details give them the right to interpret the grammar in a way that historically has not been interpreted that way, and it really doesn't make the best sense, I don't think, even within the context of those passages. But uh, in, in any case, just know, if you hear us referencing the new perspective on Paul, that's what we're making reference to, is a movement within scholarship that is new, it's current, it's popular and it's being used by LDS people to redefine justification in a way that comes a little closer to fitting their system. And that is essentially to define justification as uh, these different markers that would consider you to be a part of the covenant community or not. And uh, that you really get into that covenant community 
by grace, as we just now said. But then once you are in the covenant community, you you stay in the covenant community by your positive growth and righteousness. Yeah. And uh, that's probably the most general basic way that I could yeah. could put it out there right now. It but, makes issues of soteriology primarily ecclesiology. Yeah. So it's more horizontal focused rather than vertically focused. Yeah, that the biggest issues in the church were relations between Jews and right. Gentiles right. and how to work out these different, like what are what are the boundary markers? What are yeah. the things that mark you as a one of the members of the covenant community? And that that's fundamentally what justification is dealing with is, yeah. you know, those different issues. And so what we're saying is that we, we get bothered, of course, as two guys who really want to read and be consistent and as scholarly as we can in the way that we do our studies. We get frustrated when we see LDS scholars and, you know, professors at BYU and all this different stuff, the interpreter using the new perspective on Paul and really bashing Protestant positions like, oh, this is where the Protestants went wrong. They're so, they're so silly and, you know, don't know what they're saying. And, uh, and they use new perspective arguments and any honest new perspective scholar who is doing the work within their own new perspective system would look at LDS people and just say, you're not even close, man. Like right. you're, you're not even close yeah. because, because in order for the new perspective on Paul to work, they're seeking to be as, as accurate to second temple Judaism as they see it, which again, we think there's some flaws in the way that they see it, but they're trying to be as accurate as they can according to those historical details. And what we've made as an argument again and again on this podcast is that the LDS faith is nothing even remotely close to a Jewish conception, even when it comes to something as fundamental as the doctrine of God. Yeah. Or creation, man, time. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, yep. Yeah. Like you think E.P. Sanders would be like, yeah, you know, Second like Temple Jews, guys, we've overlooked something. God was once a man on an earth like this and became God. Yep. And that 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 was an yeah. acceptable view. Really the issue was, you know, circumcision boundary markers. Yep. Yep. Come on. I, yeah. It what this is what they do. It, and it just drives you nuts. They it's like they pe- see people cr- people probably crucified Jesus cuz he was subversively telling people that they didn't have to be circumcised. That's probably why they actually crucified him. Right. Not because he was claiming to be God, <laughs> yes. you know, and that was offensive to them for some reason. Right, or a God, yeah. you know. Yeah, uh, because, of course, in an LDS perspective, we're, what's wrong with saying you're God? Exactly, I'm, I'm that's a, how they I'm interpret I'm a God in embryo, right? Exactly, no, totally. No. Uh, Jesus is God, and yeah. we are too. The Jews crucified Jesus because of his claims of his deity. Yeah. Right. Just to be clear there. So right. yeah. anyways, it's just that that's just the way that they do scholarship is they're they're committed to their system. And so they'll take multiple systems and kind of syncretize the beliefs of those different systems to fit what they're trying to argue, but they never they never are faithfully represent, I guess, even those systems in and of themselves. No. Uh they just they just use those ideas to selectively. Yeah, to promote their own LDS worldview, right? right. And that's what, and, and they've been doing this a long time, right? Christians debate; they find what side they can use to claim they're at the table without any accountability to the implications of the views that they're using to say they're the same. Yep, that's right. <laughs> so, no, there's nobody in the early church denying there's one God. That's, that's right. why the Arian controversy was so high, heated. Yep. is how do you articulate the full deity of the Father and the Son? 
and with the nature of God being unchanging in light of the incarnation, um, nobody's there saying God became a man. Yeah, and yet, and we'll get to this. Terrell Givens, whoever, they'll be like, they'll proof text these quotes that, out of context, can seem, you know, LDSy. Yeah, interpret these, you know, interpret the early Christian quotes in a certain way as aggressively as possible, and then you know, interpret the Mormon views in a certain way as possible to bring them as close as possible, and then just hope you don't see the accountability for the whole system. Of each, yeah, and it's it it it's so tiresome, yeah. Like N.T. Wright, all the differences we have with him, he's not claiming the Jews were polytheistic. He's not claiming Paul is polytheistic. Yeah, you know, and it's yeah, it's, it's just it's frustrating because they use these views to present themselves as scholarly, and yes. so they'll they'll say the Protestants don't know what they're talking about because they don't read the historical context and they miss all these historical details. Second temple Judaism was clearly this kind of a system. And they'll, they'll again, take all of the things that fit, but then they'll just ignore the fact that that very thing that they just said was, was so wonderful that everybody should listen to the contextual details. That system denounces their own system. The core completely their core system so, so that's what we're saying it's it's inconsistent and it uh it's a it's a hypocritical sort of scholar scholarly interaction yeah yeah it so that that does lead into one other loose end and i'll, I'll try to make this quick because we i know we got to actually get to this lesson but really quickly i just we could not cover romans one through six uh without covering this and that is uh recently there was uh uh, a modern translation done by uh, a scholar named Thomas Wayment uh, of the New Testament, uh, published by Deseret Book, which is pretty amazing if you know the kind of LDS form of KJV onlyism, which we have covered on the show. However, get this: Deseret Book published this book in the footnote on verses uh, twenty-six and twenty-seven, where Paul uses as one of his examples of the rebellion of man and man being given away to sin as homosexuality, um, homosexual behavior, right? Uh, this is his footnote. We got to include this. These verbs have, uh, verses, sorry, these verses have become one of the primary pieces of evidence for the discussion of homosexuality in the New Testament. In Paul's day, pederasty and other abhorrent sexual practices were more common particularly in accusations made by religious individuals against foreign religious cults. Okay? It is, therefore, therefore, this is supposed to follow from what he said before, and it doesn't. Therefore, unclear that Paul is condemning the practice of homosexuality, but instead may be condemning what he perceives to be strange and foreign sexual practices, such as pederasty. From such scant, notice, what he perceives. What he perceives. Mm-hmm. Look at the view of scripture here. From such scant evidence, it remains unclear what actions Paul had in mind here, but it is obviously abhorrent to him. Yeah. To him. Yeah. Not to God. Yeah. Uh, okay. This, Deseret Book published this. Yeah. So yep. there you go. Um, and by the way, people in the interpreter will promote this translation as well. Yeah. Did none of them, I don't know. It's not like that issue isn't, I don't know, a big one in our time. Mm-hmm. I mean, you'd think that the people going through the manuscript or this book 
would, I don't know, open up to some of these passages that are some of the most debated by or disputed or rejected by the activists today. Yep. Yep. Um, and apparently this slipped through. Uh, yeah. Or someone was happy it did. This is how the left works, of course, right? Yep. That's you sneak right. in word games. There's always a, a battleground, this kind of what condition of low visibility, as Machen calls it. Yeah. And um, I'm sure he's uh, Waymint, who is himself a progressive. Um, if you listen to interviews with him, um, is really proud yeah. that he got this through and with Deseret Books approval. Mm. Now, it, it, and of course, that's a, that's a bogus argument. Uh, so I'll, I'll put this book in the uh, um, in the show notes. If anybody, uh, there's other books too that deal with this on a you know more popular level that are just as good. But this book, Robert Gagnon's The Bible and Homosexual Practice. Mm-hmm. I mean, verse by verse, word by word, and I, th- this is not close. Yeah. No, no, it is not unclear. <laughs> and by the way, everybody's religious in the ancient world. Uh, I don't know what he means by that. He should know that. Um, and also, he never, you know, he doesn't cite anything about these other porn sexual trends. No, I think it's pretty clear what it meant. It is clear that's his example. It flows in the argument, and it's an argument based on creation. So, yeah. What do you do with that? And yet, here's here's their guy. Uh, a second one, and I wanted to point this out. What connects these two is the use of citations and the use of footnotes. So here's an example of somebody with um, degrees, right, sneaking in, using, using his degrees to sneak in uh, doubt where he selectively wants doubt yeah. because of his political views yep. and social views. Well, here's one of their apostles um, and this is cited in the seminary manual, but I caught it a while back and just, this was stunning to me. So there's a talk called hearts knit in righteousness by uh, cook. And this just has to be called out. I, somebody's got to do it. I haven't seen this get any attention. Uh, hearts knit in righteousness and unity, October, 2020. And in the seminary manual, it, it includes it, you know, with the question, how can making efforts to be unified with others help us become more like Jesus? So it's all about church unity. Mm-hmm. Um, Listen to this. This is so interesting. Cook, the uh, LDS apostle, in general conference. Our church culture comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've mentioned this before, but even that sentence, right? That deserves some attention. They really think that their culture comes from the gospel. So all those people who want to distinguish the culture, and we, we encounter this all the time, and th- there is some truth to this, that the culture is distinct from the doctrine or the people distinct from the church. That's not what Cook just said in your general conference. Mm-hmm. He says the culture, and by the way, there's another talk given in the same conference. It's just, it was stunning when I read it. The Culture of Christ by William K. Jackson. I'll put it in the show notes. They really think that LDS culture, they don't see their historical contingency whatsoever you know, the way we would with American evangelicalism, you know. Right. Um, and, no, it is from this. Well, his evidence is this, <clears throat> of an example, I guess, to defend this. The epistle of the Apostle Paul to the Romans is profound. It's profound. Mm-hmm. Wow. Citation. Uh, the epistle to the Romans is comprehensive in declaring doctrine. We agree. Uh, Romans contains the only mention of the atonement in the New Testament. That's... 
misleading. Yep. I came to appreciate the epistle to the Romans for unifying diverse people through the gospel of Jesus Christ when I served as a stake president with members from numerous races and cultures speaking many different languages. Okay. That's a citation. Okay. The early church in Rome was composed of Jews and Gentiles. These early Jews had a Judaic culture and had won their emancipation and began to multiply and flourish. Citation. Frederick W. Farrar, The Life and Work of St. Paul, 1898, page 446. Now, I'm going to come back to this. But that's a odd... Have you ever heard of Farrar before I brought it up? Have you, have you, had a, had you ever heard of him? Okay. But that's... Citation for for a point that you think you could just cite Romans for, yeah. but the Gentiles in Rome had a culture with a significant Hellenistic influence, which the Apostle Paul understood well because of his experiences at Athens and Corinth. Um, he was also a Hellenistic Jew himself. Okay, whatever. Um, <laughs> Paul sets forth the gospel of Jesus Christ in a comprehensive fashion. Yeah, he chronicles the pertinent aspects of both Judaic and Gentile culture. See for our same book. The conflict with the true gospel of Jesus Christ. He essentially asks each of them to leave behind cultural impediments from their beliefs and culture that are not consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And keep in mind what he just said. He just said the LDS culture here is from the gospel. Mm -hmm. So he's telling all these LDS all throughout the world, become like us. Yeah. Yeah, no arrogance there. Yeah. Paul admonishes the Jews and the Gentiles to keep the commandments and love one another and affirms that righteousness leads to salvation. Mm -hmm. Footnote. Romans 13. Yeah. So not a verse. Romans 13. Mm -hmm. So if you go to Romans 13, and you look through, it never says that. Yeah. It never says that righteousness leads to salvation. And if you understand the earlier part of Romans, the stuff we've been covering the whole time, right? Does it ever say <laughs> Abraham's righteousness led to his salvation or something? Mm -hmm. No. So you look through, it's like, okay, where, why does he cite Romans 13? Because of the LDS heading to Romans 13. Yep. Let me read the heading. This is not scripture. This is what the LDS church and I, I believe it was McConkie, probably others as well, but they originally put these headings in uh, to a particular edition. Paul counsels be subject unto God's ministers, even that. That's not what he's talking about. Uh, but you got to keep in mind the, the right to revolution mm -hmm. is theological for Mormonism. Yeah. It's an issue for Christians because of this verse. Yeah, It's not for Mormons. I mean, the American Revolution is literally God yeah. raising the founders, and mm -hmm. you know the Declaration is probably treated more like Scripture by many LDS yeah. than even the Bible. But anyway, keep keep the commandments, love one another. Righteousness leads to salvation. He okay. So remember this profound letter where he lays out all this doctrine comprehensively and lays out the gospel in clarity. He doesn't cite it once. Mm -hmm. He doesn't cite what Paul wrote once. And he only cites anything to do with it once, and it's the LDS heading that they insert that contradicts Paul's teachings. Yeah. Now, on this Farrar point, this is something that will be missed, and I just don't have enough time to go into this. Um, maybe we can come back to this, because this is the use of citations. I, I've tried to make this a point with Holland, others. It is They don't get called out enough for how bogus their citation pattern is. Mm -hmm. 
And, and whether it's a scholar using his credentials to sneak in stuff like Thomas Wayment, uh, even though this has been looked at by a gazillion different people, the honest position is to say Paul taught this and I disagree, uh, not claim it's unclear. Yeah. Um, no, who is this Farrar guy? Now, I don't have enough time to go into him, but he's part of the Victorian lives of Jesus tradition. Ironically, that the E.P. Sanders of the world are reacting to in the new perspective of Judaism, which I think is a lot more interesting than the new perspective of Paul. The implications for Paul, <laughs> I think, is a lot more dangerous than just being more careful in dealing with Jewish sources. Yeah. Um, and Farrar wrote this book, The Life and Work of St. Paul, in 1898. Now, why it should stand out is that the reason they cite it, it I, I kid you not, this is why they cite it, is it's one of the sources Talmadge was comfortable citing in this Jesus the Christ. That's why. Mm -hmm. So a hundred years later, they still will only cite some random source no one's heard of from 1898. Yeah. Because James Talmadge cited it. Yeah. Yeah. So in this, this is not just a speculation. So there's one, I'll put the, the citation. There's one scholar that caught on to this. Um, I don't agree with everything he does. It's clear he's a new perspective guy and, and even likes Ehrman's book on the historical Jesus. However, the the Mormon stuff I thought was really interesting. So it seems like B.H. Roberts, who's an LDS apostle, um, was one of the first to start studying more academic stuff from these Victorian writers um, in the 1880s, um, including, by the way, Alfred Edersheim, which I want to be more careful with because um, he actually became reformed he was a messianic jew and wrote a lot of stuff but what what happens in a lot of these books is they, they paint judaism as full-on pelagian which makes it an easy target as even george footmore who was a jewish scholar in the 1920s pointed out that yeah it's not like grace is absolutely absent from this stuff mm -hmm. and therefore jesus brought in grace and spirit but that's often what happens in these sources right and they tend to be very um unkind let me say. So like James Talmadge, he brings in some of this stuff from, of course, Adam Clark's Bible commentary, which we've covered before. Um, and then Farrar. Um, and he'll talk about um, Jews as wicked, captious, haggling, hostile, murmuring, crafty, self-seeking, perverted, and proud. Now, I'm... Jesus said some harsh things. I am not at all saying, be nice. That has to rule everything. But... It, what it d ends up end being used for theologically is saying things like Jesus emphasized the spirit, whereas Jews were all legalistic, mm -hmm. or they were all about dead literalism, whereas Jesus was for you know the metaphor. Even though there's rabbinic parables, um, you know they were into pride. What it, it ends up being is just everything we don't like. Yeah. We pin on the Jews, and it's it's just we have to be way more careful in being accurate in describing them now. This, though, and this, this is the irony that they're of them using the new perspective now, and this is what I want people to see, mm. is yet their manuals and their general authority not that long ago, they're still citing the sources the new perspective was supposed to correct. Mm -hmm. They don't they, they want to be held accountable. Correct Cook, then. Yeah. Correct Talmadge. Yeah. Don't, I mean, come on. So listen to this. This is so interesting. It is, uh, this is quoting this article, it is not unexpected to find LDS writers at the turn of the century relying on the roughly contemporary works of Farrar, Geike, and Eidersheim, but the prominence they were afforded by Talmadge resulted in an unusually long afterlife. <laughs> right, because of their position in the church. 
right? Not only did LDS writers continue drawing on these authors through the 1950s, but they were increasingly given priority over more current scholarship, keeping in mind that even at the time Talmadge is writing, this is old, these are old works. Um, so, for example, Joseph Fielding Smith, J. Reuben Clark, who, by the way, we now know was sharing Protocols of the Elders of Zion, an anti-Semitic book, bogus, it's a lie that won't die, about the Jewish conspiracy running everything with Ezra Taft Benson. They both uh, believed in this book. So, of course, he's going to be drawn to this view of the Jews. Yeah, Bruce R. McConkie, um, in his uh, Doctrine New Testament Commentary, Mortal Messiah series, his only non-LDS sources, that, and you can see this in the bibliography, are Farrar, Geike, and Edersheim. And then, of course, even as of 2014, the current Institute of Religion Manual of the New Testament, the life and teaching of Jesus and the Apostles, if we were doing the podcast back then, that's the manual we'd be going through. Mm-hmm. It cites Talmud 79 times, McConkie 251 times, and then a few references to Farrar, Geike, and Edersheim. And, of course, other examples he cites uh, includes M. Catherine Thomas. She's from the, remember, she's the Richard Rohr. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Connect our energies. And so we did, dealt with it on the yeah. Easter episode in which I got overheated. Uh, Robert Millet. So, anyway, why, why this is weird. Look at, look at the use of scholarship we've been describing today. That's a little weird. That Can you imagine if Calvin cited a source and a scholar today would only cite the sources he cited. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what we're dealing with. What I'm trying to describe is a mentality that is weird Mm. because Talmadge cited those sources. I guess those are okay. And nothing else. We found the Dead Sea Scrolls sense. We found, I mean, there's a lot of new insights into these things. And then once again, then on the flip side, they'll, They'll cite the new perspective against us. Yeah, yeah. The new perspective that reacts to the stuff that was the basis of all their stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so there's an unwillingness to be critical to people in their own camp. Yeah, which is especially problematic because their views and arguments have changed so drastically. Yeah, from what was there early on in certain areas, um, and one of those being their newer attempt to adopt the new perspective exactly. on Paul. Exactly. Yeah. And and this is a problem even with the new perspective too. They 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 do don't do a good job of distinguishing Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism. But remember the the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, right? He thanked God he wasn't like other men. He acknowledged grace. Um the semi-Pelagianism is the is the issue, right? And it still is the issue. That's how Pelagianism sneaks in. And they can say, um, well, that's just, you know, you niche reform people or whatever. But no, no, it, it, you know, it, this is not a New Testament problem. This is, you know, a problem with certain areas of scholarship that, um, you know, we should be more aware of the problems and what they can lead to. Uh, the last point I wanted to mention on this was a quote from Farrar, just because it ties to, to LDSism. And this is something, of course, the manual in sight, but listen to this. This is from his life of Christ. This is his description of Jesus. And of course, this is 1898. A man of middle size and of about 30 years of age on whose face the purity and charm of youth are mingled with the thoughtfulness and dignity of manhood. His hair, which legend has compared to the color of wine, is parted in the middle of the forehead and flows down over the neck. His features are paler and of a more Hellenic type and the weather-bronzed and olive-tanned faces of the hardy fishermen who are his apostles. Mm-hmm. 
I can't help but wonder if that's influenced the white Jesus of LDSism. But surely on this side of Nazism, we can see the negative consequences of some of the scholarship. And it's not to say everything Farrar said was wrong. I, I'm not one of those snobs that think, oh, only current scholarship is, is good. Yeah. I, I think Edersheim is really interesting to this day. But at the same time, we can't go the other way and only cite old people, let alone for the quirky reason that Talmud just happened to be an apostle, so we can only cite sources that he cites. Yeah. And uh, surely the, the Aryan Jesus of Mormonism could be defended by Farrar, but no, no scholar today, uh, I would think, including the interpreter, could from the Bible, from the ancient Near Eastern context, uh, the Mediterranean context, would say Jesus is a white man. Yeah. Yep. Interesting stuff. Okay. Those are fun notes. Yes. <laughs> now <laughs> to, to, now the to the manual. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's uh, let's, let's hit this. Let, yeah. Let's shoot through it. So we are pretty much going to be zooming in on one particular section within the manual this week. We're looking at Romans seven to sixteen. The subtitle is "Overcome Evil with Good." You got the classic: uh, record spiritual impressions and ponder your impressions, and those impressions could lead to meaningful learning activities at the top and then in the invite sharing you've got a couple of verses that uh, class members are expected to uh, listen to as the leader reads them out loud and then they're supposed to generally just share a few of the scriptures from Romans 7 to 16 that build their faith and uh, hope and uh, it's interesting they even use that word faith but yeah anyway then you got uh romans 8 14 to 18 being the first section of scripture that they're covering in the teach the doctrine and we're going to zoom in on that one as our primary one so i'm going to yeah. just work through this pretty quickly and then we'll come back and camp out there for the rest of the time and uh, romans 8 14 to 18 their subtitle which if you're not familiar with that passage we'll read it out loud here in just a little bit so that you got the context but their subtitle there is we can can become joint heirs with Christ. They've already gone off the rails and saying we can become in the sense of, of course, they're talking to their church members yep. and it's like, this is something you can become. Uh, we would tell our church members, you are joint heirs with Christ. And yeah. that's a, a fundamental distinction because that's what Paul says. And yes. uh, we'll look at that here in just a little bit. But they go on in that uh, section to say, as Latter-day Saints, we believe that phrases such as heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ mean that with Jesus Christ's help, we can become like Heavenly Father and receive all that he has. And then they make reference to their uh, additional resources, which is very extensive in this lesson, and that's why we're camping out on this point primarily. But uh, they do go ahead and say an analogy given by President Dallin H. Oaks and additional resources could help class members discuss how we can prepare to become heirs of God. And uh, anyway, we'll get into all that. And then they look at Romans uh, 8, 18, Romans 28, Romans 31 to 39 in the next subsection. And the subtitle there is, Who Shall Separate Us from the Love of Christ? You've got a reference directly to the feelings and emotional sort of experience that we've been talking about all year, where they say, discuss Romans 8 together. That could provide an opportunity for class members to share uh, their feelings of the Savior's love. 
uh, essentially. So what kind of feelings do these texts give to you? Some might be willing willing to share how they've gained testimonies of the truths that are found in these verses. And then moving on to Romans 13, 8 to 10, their subtitle there is all of God's commandments are fulfilled in the commandment to love. And uh, then there's just uh, encouragement to think of how love thy neighbor has to do with uh basically um, summing up all of the commandments that you're supposed to obey. And uh, yeah, just obviously we would see uh, the, the love, the commandment to love being the fulfillment of what, uh, what Christ is doing and has done and is doing in us. But anyways, Romans 14, let us not judge one another is the last subtitle. And that one is basically taking that passage of Romans 14 and saying, uh, you know, why, why would we be judgmental toward each other over different cultural things? Um, what similar habits, like judging people over eating habits or holiday observances, might we be basically tempted to judge people about? And why should we avoid being judgmental over those different things? And uh, that's pretty interesting for a faith that up until this past year, told you don't have any tattoos and tells you you're not allowed to drink coffee or alcohol or (laughs) anything. Um, They create a culture of judgment and then say, but don't be judgmental. That's right. Don't be judgy. (laughs) So there's that. Okay. Okay. All right. Let's get back to the the meat of it here just because we're already having uh, the clock's ticking on us here. So Romans 8, uh, 14 to 18 is really where they want to camp uh, for the majority of, of, it sounds like the week uh, from the material and the seminary and all that stuff. And this is definitely the main thing that they want to cover in this Come Follow Me curriculum for the Sunday School lesson. So let me read Romans 8, starting in verse 14 for us, just so that we've got the context of this passage, and then we will begin to work on through it uh, systematically after that. I'm actually going to start in verse 12. So it says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For if you did not receive the spirit of slavery, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. All right, Skylar, go ahead and fill out for us what they do with this text. Um, and yeah, take that with however you want to. I don't know if we want to start working through some of these additional resources or what, but uh, one thing that we were talking about is this lesson really is one of the most clearly uh, LDS lessons that we've probably seen all year in terms of them being clear on their own doctrine of yes. exaltation. Yeah, and, I was impressed. Uh, yeah, so it's helpful in that sense that they're actually they're they're owning some of these beliefs that they have about becoming 
God, and uh, that they, they believe that they are of the same substance as God. There is no fundamental difference between man and God, except that God has progressed further, and we need to progress like him. And they're, they're clear on that this week. Yes, absolutely. So the, if, if you, um, and I would encourage a listener to do this, but go backwards. Um, so in the additional resources, they list verses, right, that support this. All that the Father hath we can inherit, which by that they mean that literally, right? And just to point out, you know, if you start with DNC 132, this is the polygamy passage. How often does this polygamy passage come up? Justifying yeah. polygamy. And uh, the verse 19 that they include, so one of them is 20 and 21. In the additional resources, it's 19 and 20. Verse 19 is so long that I'm going to leave that to the, to the listener if they are curious. Uh, but verse 20, it says, Then shall they be gods. Mm-hmm. So they own it here. Then shall they be gods, because they have no end. Therefore shall they be from everlasting to everlasting, because they continue. Then they shall be above all, because all things are subject unto them. Then shall they be gods, because they have all power, and angels are subject to them. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you abide in my law, you cannot attain this glory. So once again, that's the context. If you go to 88, 84, you'll see similar things. Uh, 76, what they cite, interestingly enough, the verses include Church of the Firstborn, um, which is still, a, I guess, a future church. A lot of fundamentalists are into the Church of the Firstborn. Uh, Chad and Lori Daybell, by the way, thought they were going to start it, um, for those that are into the news lately. But um, if you go backwards, you'll see how they're twisting the biblical verses. Yeah. And so even though they start with Luke, Romans, Second Corinthians, Galatians, Revolution, Revelation, and of course they're proof texting these in a way that... It is a revolution. Right, yeah, <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> twice. <laughs> revelation twice. Then third Nephi, then four DNC, or sorry, five DNC verse, uh, verses. And then they cite this gospel topics essay, Becoming Like God, which we'll cite um, really quickly. The, the Dallin Oaks section on this I think is really how to frame the, uh, their view, and I'll oh, just yeah. I'll just highlight ridges on this. Um, so this is Dallin Oaks, Ensign, November two thousand. So October General Conference, the challenge to become a wealthy father knew that if he were to bestow his wealth upon a child who had not yet developed the needed wisdom and stature, the inheritance would probably be wasted. Mm-hmm. That's the. Fr- <laughs> That's the framing of the inheritance. Yep. The father said to his child, quote, All that I have I desire to give you, not only my wealth, but also my position in standing among men. That which I have I can easily give you, but that which I am you must obtain for yourself. Mm. Hear that? Yep. You will qualify for your inheritance by learning what I have learned and by living as I have lived. Remember, this is the wealthy father to the son Yep. in this section. I will give you the laws and principles by which I have acquired my wisdom and stature. Follow my example, mastering as I have mastered, and you will become as I am, and all that I have will be yours. Hmm. That's how they frame this. Yep. So if you look at uh, David Ridges, right, um, for as many as are led by the Spirit, they are the sons. He says, ultimately end up in exaltation, meaning the highest degree of glory in the celestial kingdom. And he talks about 
that through following the Savior's gospel, they can return to their rightful status of being the sons and daughters of God, belonging to him and being privileged to call him daddy. This is a pleasant reminder that the family unit exists in exaltation. Talk about missing the metaphor. Mm-hmm. Uh, both for Christ and for us, right? Um, Paul On verses 16 and 17, Ridges says, Paul specifically reminds the Roman saints and us that we are literally the children of God and can literally become like him. These are two of the most important doctrinal verses in Paul's writings, of course, because he agrees with them. And of course, they are important. I'm not belittling that, but that's how they're prioritizing it, is if they can use the words to mean what they want them to mean, especially in the King James English. The Holy Ghost tells our spirit that we are indeed Heavenly Father's children, on verse 16. And then since we are the Father's children, then we stand to inherit all that he has, citing the DNC 84 that is cited in this additional resources. And when it talks about being uh, glorified together, or sorry, if we, um, what is it? If we suffer, provided we suffer with him, he says, if we sacrifice whatever is necessary to follow the Savior. So they make it an if-then, you know, conditional, and, and take it all the way, right? And then glorified together that we may be received into celestial glory and exaltation with him. And then he adds this comment, there's no comparison between the small price we pay to attain exaltation and the actual glory of it. So that should give a little bit, that's that's actually trying to deal with these verses. But I think the key is just seeing that all the theology that makes them distinctive is being assumed mm-hmm. here. Yeah. And then what you're doing is you take that worldview to these biblical verses. Yep. And you see what you want to see. You see you, you, that you see the data from the worldview you, you bring to it rather than being conformed by the Bible to yeah. God's view. Right. Which is exactly that. what is it Anderson says in yeah. the beginning of his book. Yes. Where he's like, yes. I started studying Paul to write this about Paul. And as I studied Paul, I realized how glorious our new revelation is that helps us understand what Paul's actually saying. So that's, I mean, that's his point is right. we're going to bring our worldview and, and, you know, interpret Paul in light of our new revelation, essentially, which mm-hmm. totally changes the meaning of what Paul intended to convey. Absolutely. And that's, that's why you kind of have to start backwards because <laughs> it's so funny that you think, oh, it's like Luke 12, Romans 8, 2 Corinthians 3. You think, wow, there's a lot of Bible verses they can cite for this. And then as you go um, deeper into it, th- honestly, this is almost like a metaphor right here in the additional resources of the nominal Christian to Mormon movement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, this has never been explained to me before. Oh, these, you know, yeah. my pastor never told me about this verse. And then all of a sudden you're into DNC reading about how ye shall be gods if you practice polygamy, which is now interpreted as marriage, which that's not mm-hmm. what it, that's not what it was. Yeah. Um, and you know, these DNC sections, if you read through them, uh, let's see right here, just as another example. Um the Lamb of God hath overcome and trod in the winepress alone, even the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty God. And then shall the angels be crowned with the glory of his might, and the saints shall be filled with his glory and receive their inheritance and be made equal with him. And they mean by that, equal. They don't... Yeah. You know, they, um, so anyway, there's just... 
There's quite a bit there. Now, this Becoming Like God Gospel Topics essay is cited in the seminary manual here, and this is um, underneath their attempt um, to deal with, and I I read you this uh, before we went on, because I thought, hey, they actually tried to deal with it, to their credit, but do they actually deal with it? Um, If we are naturally already children of God, what is the function of the adoption metaphor? Yeah. Right? So they, they anticipate that. Why did Paul teach that we need to become the sons of God when we are all his children? Although every person is literally a spirit child of heavenly parents, Paul's teachings about the spirit of adoption and becoming the sons of God, sons and daughters of God help us understand that we can be spiritually reborn or adopted as Christ's sons and daughters in the gospel covenant Becoming the sons and daughters of Jesus Christ through spiritual rebirth is essential for qualifying for all that Heavenly Father has. And of course, one of the truths underlined underneath of this passage is we have a divine nature and destiny. So here's an interesting thing. I've got a book here called Father, Son, and Spirit in Romans 8, the Roman reception of Paul's Trinitarian theology, showing that the Trinity is assumed at every point throughout this section. Mm-hmm. Right, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. Glory be to him forever. And, and yet, notice, the polytheism comes through for them. So they'll say, oh, yeah, we're not naturally Jesus' sons and daughters. So we have to be adopted as him, and he's a d- distinct being in person. Yeah. So we have to be adopted, and that's essential for qualifying for what Heavenly Father has. Yep. We have to be adopted as his sons and daughters. Yep. And I'm also thinking the early Mormon view that, you know, the father will move on, that Jesus will become the next father, you know, the next son, probably Joseph Smith for early Mormons, will be the savior of the next round of lives. Anyway, I get, I, I, yeah. you're not going to hear that from the manual. But the point being, notice how the polytheism comes through and how they deal with it. Yep. The father, son, and Holy Ghost as three separate beings and persons. And um, then they cite the very bottom, the same Gospel Topics essay, which is Becoming Like God. Now, what is a Gospel Topics essay? I don't know. We all don't know. It's like eight clicks away, but it's there. And they've been promoting them in the manual to their credit, but they deal with tough topics or whatever uh, for LDS believers. But, the, you know, there's not a date. There's not a name, though we have. I'm pretty sure it's Terrell Gibbons behind this one. Um and yet they're, they're kind of attempts to deal with things like, um, I don't know, the Book of Abraham, uh, Joseph Smith's polygamy, stuff like that, uh, Mountain Meadows Massacre. Anyway, this is one of them. And in it, it defends the LDS view of being literally children of God in a complete sense, it says, in a full and complete sense. Yep. And that every person is divine in origin, nature, and potential. Each has an eternal core and is a beloved spirit, son, or daughter of heavenly parents. Each possesses seeds of divinity and must choose whether to live in harmony or tension with that divinity. And through the atonement of Jesus Christ, all people may progress toward perfection, ultimately realize their divine destiny. Just as a child can develop the attributes of his or her parents over time, the divine nature that humans inherit 
can be developed to become like their heavenly fathers. So that, that I think is the key and there's more, but that is the key to understanding how they're viewing this passage. When they say joint heirs, they mean heirs in a literal sense. Instead of taking the metaphor of the transcendent creator relative to his image bearers in creation who have been fallen and now redeemed in Christ Jesus, yep. um, they are making it a literal thing with that, you know, without any sort of transcendence, ultimately, whether it being or anything else. Yeah. So just to boil down a little bit of a evangelical Christian interpretation of this passage, which we firmly believe is quite clear and, and obviously quite right from yeah. our perspective, but uh, this passage and many of these passages really help to deal with a lot of the, I think, false accusations that LDS scholars would make toward uh, evangelical Christianity. So you'll find a lot of uh, the the scholars will develop this caricature of evangelical Christianity that is, well, all you got to do is believe. So that means you don't got to do anything with, with your life. There's no works that need to be done. There's nothing further uh, after you say a prayer or do whatever. And honestly, we would, we would make some of those critiques towards certain factions of evangelicalism as well, but that's not fundamentally a doctrinal viewpoint of creedal Christianity or evangelical no. Christianity. And, uh, you know, I, I was just mentioning to you before we, we turned the podcast on, I, I, I think one of the biggest doctrines that the new perspective, but obviously the LDS people who want to try to use a new perspective and the LDS viewpoint as a whole, I think what they miss in this whole equation is the doctrine of union with Christ. They don't understand how central Christ is to everything in the, eyes of the New Testament authors, and really because the New Testament authors are interpreting the Old Testament with eyes that now see Jesus, this is the central message of the whole Bible. Everything in the Bible centers on Christ and his person, his work. And so the thing that you just mentioned in passing, uh, I think we ought to make more clear that the Bible presents Jesus as someone who is fundamentally different from all mankind in the sense that he is the image of the invisible God. He is God made flesh. John 8, he's talking to the Jews and he says in reference to claiming to be God, unless you believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins. So Jesus is, is making these claims of his deity. And of course, as we already mentioned in the Jewish context, that doesn't mean that there's a bunch of gods where all gods in embryo and Jesus is just further progressing. We are, Jesus is going to be crucified by the Jews because the Jews understand exactly what he's saying. Yeah, to be the one God. You're saying you're the one God. There's only one, and you're saying you're him. And and they consider that blasphemy, and that's what they crucified him for. And so Jesus is making those claims. The New Testament authors come to see him as that. And so then the question becomes, okay, well, what of his humanity? Okay, if, if, he, if he is truly this man who lived and walked and has been here on the earth, but then he's saying, I am, I am, <laughs> you know, I am the great I am. Yeah. Um, how do you begin to deal with that? And what you begin to see as you study these different things is that Jesus in his incarnate work is God who took on flesh, comes down into this world. He took on the 
Adamic image, if you will. He took on the image of man as the one who's the eternal image of God. And the reason he did that was to redeem the image that had been broken in man to make man what man was originally created to be. So Jesus comes as a man when he is, in fact, God, 100% God, 100% man, truly God, truly man, simultaneously in the person of Jesus, not ever mixing uh, those natures, but both were right alongside of one another in the person of, of Jesus Christ. And he, as a true man, redeems man of everything that man had had done wrong. So he he comes in as like this great reversal of the curse of sin upon humanity so that all who would place their faith in him would would then be brought into that redemptive work and eventually be glorified with him. And so when you see Paul saying these different things about being a co-heir with Christ, fellow heirs with Christ, things of that nature, you've got to know your theology in order to be able to discern, well, is he talking about the incarnational uh, person of Jesus here, or is he talking about the eternal God, Jesus, right? Because both of those are there, but the authors are making these different distinctions in the text. And if you look at the context within Romans chapter eight, it becomes clear that what Paul has in mind is the redemptive work of Jesus that he did in his human person on behalf of all who would believe in him. So chapter eight, verse one begins by Paul saying, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are what in Christ Jesus that in Christ Jesus is cluing us into this doctrine that we need to know union with Christ. If you want to be in this position where you no longer have condemnation towards you for your sin, you need to be in Christ Jesus. And of course, you get into Christ Jesus by faith and faith alone, by trusting him that he is the one who came and accomplished all of the redemptive work necessary for you to be justified before God. But when you believe in Jesus and you are placed into him, what we see is you're united to him, meaning he sends his spirit into your heart. And the the work of the spirit of Christ is that which causes us to cry out, Abba Father. It's that which causes us to be brought into this new position before God. And so the Spirit begins to do a work of sanctification in us where we begin to be restored into that Adamic image as well. But that restoration happens in Christ. It happens as we are united to him, as we are abiding in him, as we are hidden in him. And the the Bible uses all these different uh, sorts of images to show that our life is in Christ. Christ sends the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and indwells our hearts and begins a work in us. And we then become a sort of uh, new creation. And Paul has this this already not yet tension in all of his letters where he is trying to encourage churches by saying, this is an already present reality in you spiritually, but it's not yet completed in you. It's guaranteed to be completed because you're in Christ. And he is already, of course, resurrected and ascended and in heaven. But Paul has this beautiful, glorious, of course, true picture of the future of man and the future of all who are in Christ, which is that we will be restored into the position that we were called to be in as man when we were placed on this earth originally. 
And so Christ is redeeming really the whole creation in one sense, in that all things that sin has undone, Christ is bringing back together to be right, to be at, at peace, to be in, in that sort of perfect shalom. And, uh, and so for us, in our perspective, everything depends on whether or not we are united to Christ who is doing this work in the world and who has already, of course, fundamentally uh, reversed the curse of sin by conquering sin and death through his active obedience, his passive obedience, his death on the cross, where he paid the penalty for sin in our place. His blood was shed for us on the cross. He overcome, he overcame sin and death by resurrecting from the grave. He ascended into heaven and is now in a glorified state, both as the eternal image and as the edemic image seated in heaven. And so we become like him, not in the sense of the eternal image, Yes. But yes, in the yes, sense of the, the edemic sense. image. That distinction is not even mentioned exactly. in any of the LDS sources. And that's what it means to be co-heirs with Christ. It's talking about in the edemic sense, we will reign with him. He will be king overall. He is preeminent. Paul makes that point in Colossians 1. So even as the edemic image, nobody's going to be above him. He's king. He's king. But we will be, we will be glorious as as a redeemed, restored humanity, as we will be glorious in the sense of we will finally reflect that image in the way that we were intended to do because Christ will fully and completely restore us to it on the last day. And so Paul is really using these sorts of language to encourage the church Fix your eyes on that Jesus. That's where your hope is. You, If you're in him, there's no condemnation. And he uses these beautiful phrases, even in this very passage that we're looking at, that the LDS faith totally destroys and, and misses, which is so tragic and unfortunate. But he says things like, for all who are led by the Spirit of God, which, by the way, that led by the Spirit of God could literally be translated controlled by the Spirit of God. That's what we're saying is when Christ's Spirit comes into you, you can't ever be the same again. But all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, listen to this, to fall back in fear. Now, why would you have fear? You would have fear if you are the one on whom it is, uh, on whom the requirement is placed to obey the law to the standard that is required, otherwise you're going to be condemned. Paul's saying, in Christ, there's no condemnation. You're freed in Christ because you've been forgiven of all your sins. There's no longer any condemnation, so you don't need to go back into a sort of fearful, slavery kind of a living uh, because you are now walking in the Spirit and walking in Christ. You have received adoption as sons, not you will receive adoption as sons if you do enough of the good works. You cry, Abba, Father, by the Spirit coming to you. You now know God is my Father. You don't need to fear whether or not he's going to accept you on the last day because if you're in Christ, then he will accept you in as much as he accepts his own son as that perfect edemic image that has accomplished everything to the perfect standards that God requires. If you're in him, he is your father. You don't have to fear. You can you can be a, a person who is filled with hope. 
And he says, the Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. I hope you see that this is Paul encouraging believers with the hope of the gospel, that Christ is everything. And uh, again, I, we can't make it more clear. That doesn't mean that, okay, well, I can go live my life however I want. No, the point is you're led by the Spirit now. You're controlled by the Spirit now. So Paul says, put to death the deeds of the flesh that remain within you. Mortify them, kill them. And so, yeah, we do recognize that there still is a sort of fleshly desire that clings on to us so long as we live in these bodies of death and before we are fully and completely glorified. But we can put to death those deeds of the flesh by depending upon the Spirit and by being led and controlled by the Spirit as we trust in God, look to Christ, and allow our lives to be more and more consumed by Jesus, who we are united to. Absolutely. Yeah. Amen. Um, a, a few things, just really quick. Just um, to throw out that this is not just us, because we're dealing with Mormonism, Uh Doug Moo in his magisterial commentary on Romans talks about how we, the sons of God, are such by virtue of our belonging to the Son of God. Mm. And we are heirs of God only by virtue of our union with the one who is the heir of all God's promises. See Mark 12, Galatians mm. 3, Hebrews 1. Um, there's a great book adopted into God's family by Trevor Burke exploring a Pauline metaphor. He has a chapter called God the Son and the Adopted Sons in which he points out very clearly that for Paul, there is even a reluctance on the part of Paul to juxtapose adoption with the sonship of Jesus, which functions to safeguard the unique nature, status, and function of the incarnate Son of God. Indeed, there never was a time when he was not the Son, meaning Christ. Um, And uh, it says, adoption is never used of Christ because he has always been the Son of God by nature. Mm -hmm. And unlike humans, he does not need to be adopted from his natural state into a new relationship with God as Father. In his conclusion, he says, the distinction between the unique sonship of Jesus and the believer's adoption as son for the Apostle Paul is important and needs to be upheld and carefully maintained. To use the latter in regard to Christ's role or status as son is to blur the distinction between the unique sonship and the adop- our adoption as believers. This is clear even if you deal with deification. We don't have enough time to get into theosis, theopoiesis, which is probably the better way to talk about it, uh, Terrell Givens' abuse of Irenaeus, if he indeed is the author of Becoming Like God. Because if you read Irenaeus, um, and maybe we can close with an Irenaeus quote or Athanasius, they always mediate the glorification of man through the humanity of Jesus. Yep. And always defend that the divinity of Jesus never became anything. Is he is the one God? He is the existing one. That's right. He is the God of Sinai, yep. revealed in and as the Son Jesus on the cross. Yep. So now, um, and one other thing that I just think this should be pointed out just really quick is it, it, after that, when you get God wrong, now let's go to man. It's it says in the seminary manual that of course Heavenly Father desires to bless us with all that He has, of course, but He he can't necessarily. Why? Because of eternally existing law, blah, 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 blah. Consider what characteristics, attributes, and other blessings you would like to inherit from Heavenly Father and what you can do to qualify it. And then they talk about this chart that they show that you should create, uh, the student should create in their study journal. And it says on the top, blessings Heavenly Father wants us to inherit. And then underneath, what we can do to qualify for that inheritance. That's their takeaway is here's all the stuff you can do. And yet the glorious part of this passage is everything God is doing yep. that we're not doing. All of these 
Look at this. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. God the Spirit, third person of the Trinity. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself, himself, intercedes with us, for us, with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to our will? No, the will of God, the one God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to whose purpose? God's purpose. Yeah. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. These are all things God is doing, yep. not stuff we're doing. That's right. Hear that, LDS. Yep. We plead with you. This is stuff God does for you. Yep. Accept the gift. Yep. Get off the hamster wheel. Yep. This is this is the storyline of scripture. God the Son has eternally been the image of God. He's the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten from the Father. Father, Son, and Spirit eternally exist. Create all things out of nothing. The purpose of them creating all things, well, you could probably give many things, but in the ultimate sense, it is for God's own glory. Man is created as the crown of creation, placed on the earth, and is created in the image of God. What does that mean? All men and women were created to glorify God by imaging the eternal image So we then were always from the very beginning made not to ever be considered as great and glorious as the creator God, but to reflect the glory of God back up to God, that God would be pleased in himself as he sees his creation imaging the glory of the eternal image, son of God. Man falls into sin, doesn't do what we were called to do. The original call was, of course, to fill this earth with the image, to fill this earth with the glory of of the eternal Son, to uh, take dominion over creation. And, and, and the, the original state that man was in this world, I don't think we can even comprehend. Um, I think that you, you see some shadows of it in the uh, uh, resurrected Christ and some of the passages that we get in there, but the, just the, the glorious um, nature of man as that image, I don't think we can, we can even begin to comprehend because that image has been marred by sin. Man, man falls into sin, that image gets, gets so uh, defiled that it's, uh, it's difficult to even discern uh, the image anymore. And so the the men who have rebelled against God, of course, because we who are supposed to be the rulers over this world as we image God, because we fall, all of creation falls as well. All of creation is now groaning. Um, the the sin that man committed didn't just affect men; it affected the the animal kingdom and and the plant life and everything is now dominated by death and decay, and the world is broken. The world is is lost. And the question becomes, does God just burn up the world or does he save the world? And of course, the plan from the beginning of time has been that he would send his son into the world 
to save the world. And so Jesus, who is the eternal image, becomes the creational image. He, he steps into a human body, and, and he is the the new and better and greater Adam. That's that's the whole point. He he comes and he fulfills all righteousness. Everything that Adam failed to do, Jesus doesn't fail to do. He is the perfect man. He is what man was always intended to be. And so he lives and walks in this world. Yes, he's still truly God. Yes, he's still upholding the universe by the word of his power, even when he is a baby in this world. Yes, that is all still fundamentally present in his divine nature and intact. But at the same time, he is a true human, meaning that as a true human, he doesn't tap into his divine nature to enable him to be obedient to the commandments of God that were expected to be obedient to even in Adam. No, he is perfectly obedient to all of those things. Why? So that he can be the perfect sacrifice who will give up his own life on behalf of all men so that all men who trust in him can be redeemed in him and can then be restored to that creational image as well. That's the storyline of scripture. Jesus comes, he accomplishes our redemption, he ascends into heaven, he, he is ruling right now, presently, in, in a physical uh, body um, as the eternal image and as the creational image. He rules right now over all creation, and he will bring all things into submission to his rule. On the last day, he will judge evil, he will cast out all wicked presence, and he will restore all that sin has broken in this world to its perfect state. And then you know what's going to happen? All those who have trusted in Jesus will cover this earth as the waters cover the sea. We will be redeemed completely in a glorified body to that original creational image, and we will rule over this world in the way that we were originally intended to rule over this world. But that will be, of course, under the rule of the king who will be ultimately the one who is preeminent over all of the creational world. So that's the storyline of scripture. And many people just don't see it. They don't see how fundamental our union with Christ is to all of this. You you can't begin to say things like the new perspective says where no. it's like, oh yeah, you get in by grace, but then you stay in by your own righteousness. No, you stay in only because Christ is holding you. You've been united to him. He who begins a good work and you will bring it to completion. And he does that by uniting you to Christ, sending his spirit into your heart by which you cry, Abba, Father, where you, for the rest of your life, become more and more dependent upon him, and him, by the power of his spirit, as you walk in the spirit and not by the flesh, are restored into the image that he created us to be. And so all of it is Jesus-centered, and uh, we just can't emphasize that enough because you got to see it. It's it's in the Bible. This is what Paul is trying to get across in, in Romans 8, and uh, it's just totally amiss to... Yes. LDS thinkers. Yeah, condemnation. That sounds pretty legal. Yeah. May I end with a quote from our dear brother, St. Augustine? Please do. This is from his Confessions, which, oh, man. it's To me, Augustine's Confessions, it's like a commentary on Psalm 51. Mm -hmm. If you know Psalm 51, if you don't, please read it. it. It goes through everything we're saying here. Please forgive us according to your mercy, not according to your justice. Yeah. Right. We, we know we sin. Well, here's, here's Augustine. In loving you, O Lord, I do not just have a fuzzy feeling. My love is definite and certain. Your word touched my heart, and from that moment, I began to love you. See that? Your word 
touched my heart. And from that moment, I began to love you. See how heaven and earth and all that they contain call me to love you. Their message never ceases to ring in the ears of all humanity so that no one has any excuse not to love you. Above all this, you have, you will have pity on those whom you pity and you will have mercy on those to whom you show mercy, Romans 9.15. For if it were not for your mercy, the songs of heaven and earth would beat upon human ears that were deaf. But what do I love when I love my God? Not physical beauty, not fading charm, not the splendor of earthly light so precious to our eyes. Not the fair melodies of harmony and song. Not the odors of flowers, incense, spices. Not manna or honey. Not a body which can embrace with physical delight. It is not these things I love when I love my God. And yet when I love him, I do love a certain sort of light and a voice and incense, a food and embrace. But they're the sort that I love deep in my inner being where my soul is steeped in a light which no place can contain, where it listens to a voice that never fades away with time, where it breathes an incense that no gust of wind can carry away, where it tastes a food that never runs out through being eaten, where it clutches an embrace that does not dissolve through the fulfillment of desire. This is what I love when I love my God. But what is my God? I asked this question to the earth. It answered, I am not God. And everything on earth said the same. I asked the sea and the abysses of the deep and the life forms that creep in them. But they replied, we are not your God. Seek what is above us. So I spoke to the blowing winds, but the entire atmosphere and all that lives in it replied, I am not God. Then I asked the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars, but they told me, we are not the God you seek. I spoke to everything around me and all that my senses revealed to me. And I said, seeing that you are not my God, tell me about him. Tell me something of my God. In a loud, clear voice, they replied, God is the one who made us. I put these questions simply by looking on these things and their beauty was the only answer they gave. Love some Augustine. Beautiful. Next week, we'll be in 1 Corinthians 1-7. to Appreciate you sticking with us. We will see you then.